sir. All right, it is Sunday, May 22nd, 2022. Welcome to our Sheep Gate Fellowship Sunday service. Hope all of you have had a great week. We went from super hot weather last weekend to uh, quite rainy and gloomy. Um, but hopefully you had a great week, uh, whatever you were doing. Today as we gather in the house of the Lord, I call you to worship uh, beginning with our mission statement, which reads, we here at Sheepgate exist to preach the good news of Jesus Christ, to make disciples, to love God, to love neighbor, to worship God, and to enjoy Him forever. This is our call, this is our mandate as a church. And so uh, hopefully we have that on our hearts and on our minds as we continue to grow as a community. Uh, as we come together to worship today, I uh, want to join our hearts in a moment of reflection and then respond with a time of prayer. I want to read to you from Psalm 26. I'm going to read the entire psalm. Uh, if you would prefer, you can close your eyes if it helps you to focus. Uh, we just read the psalm and you can pay close attention to what it reads. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. For your loving kindness is before my eyes. And I have walked in your truth. I do not sit with deceitful men. Nor will I go with pretenders. I hate the assembly of evildoers. And I will not sit with the wicked. I shall wash my hands in innocence. And I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and declare all your wonders. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house, the place where your glory dwells. Do not take my soul away along the sinners, nor my life of men of bloodshed, in whose hands is a wicked scheme, and whose right hand is full of Christ. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me, be gracious to me. My foot stands on a level place in the congregations. I shall bless the Lord. Amen. Let's take the time to uh, just reflect quickly on what we've read. Uh, maybe some parts of this song resonate with you, perhaps the entirety of it. But to me, it's that, that last part. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity, redeem me, be gracious to me, my foot stands in a level place, in the congregations, I shall bless the Lord. And that is my prayer for us today. Let's, take, let's close our eyes in a moment of silence as we reflect and pray and come before the Lord in humility and gratitude. distance 
in our faith for the moment. What matters most is that we are before you, regardless of worship. We ask of God that this day your word will compel our hearts to be more and more holy and like Christ. We thank you, God, for everything, all things in your world. We are just in Amen. Worship you without this
distractions may bring us um, to just prioritize these over your worship, Lord. May we just lay them all down. Help us to just settle our hearts and tune our hearts to what you have 
uh, in store for us today, what you're speaking to us through your word. And I pray for Max as he as he preaches the word. Uh, may you just um, give him the wisdom and the power through the Holy Spirit to just preach to us and teach us um, your word. And uh, yeah, may it convict our hearts today. And I pray for each and every one of us to just um, yeah, just that our hearts will be focused on just worship of you. Uh, may all the glory be yours, Lord, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Praise God from whom blessings church it is may 22nd 2022 thank you for joining us for service today it's good to see all of you and uh, those of you who are unable to physically be with us still joining us virtually good to see you as well uh, i want to turn to first corinthians 15 and we're going to continue reading in our sermon series on first corinthians and we're going to be reading verses 20 to 28 so you can turn with me to first corinthians 15 verses 20 to 28 We'll read these nine verses together and observe what Paul is teaching in this text. Now, just to quickly remind you what we've read so far in chapter 15, we've seen Paul give his, I guess, uh, defense of the physical resurrection of Christ. We then, of course, read what that logically, or the logical consequence of such a resurrection of Christ would entail for the believer, the resurrection of the believer himself. Uh, and today we're now reading a continuation of that argument flowing into uh, what I believe is uh, a proper understanding of what it means to be a Christian and have a proper understanding of not only resurrected Christ, but a resurrection to come for all of us. So let's read verses 20 to 28. I'll read and you can follow in your Bible. This is the word of God. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's as coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God, um, and to, to the God and Father, when he, was when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. When he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Amen. Uh, it's a little confusing uh, if you don't really have a firm understanding uh, what Paul is trying to argue for, and what Paul is trying to convey, of course, you know, cultural understanding, but if you just follow the, just kind of glance over the text, it's hard to catch up to what Paul is saying. A really key thing uh, in, a, in a text like this, and this is not pun unintended, the word here, subjective, is a word that's being repeated a lot, but the subject of the text must be identified. We need to fully understand the subject and the object. We need to fully understand what Paul is trying to narrate for us, right? We have to keep it within that framework. We'll get there when we get there. But let's uh, let's pray before we get into the Word. Uh, we're praying for Japan today, our Unreached People group. They come from, of course, the island nation of Japan. We're praying for the Burukumin. I was reading quickly, glancing over some of the details of this group. I had no idea who they are, but there are over 800,000 of them. There are 884,000 of these people, and only 0.2% of them are evangelical Christians. Uh, they are an unreached people group, much like the rest of the nation of Japan. But the Hebrewakumin are quite interesting. They're known as the Hamlet people, like uh, transliterated, I guess, or the literal translation of that term. 
uh, and they are considered like defiled ones, filthy commoners, non-humans in the community. So they're very much a lower class uh, people group, and they're not treated very well. They have very like minimal jobs, um, and they're not obviously you know, kind of, they're not really high on the economic ladder in Japan, and they sort of created and trained their own sort of Buddhist, Yujinshinko priests. They call them diviners and ceremonial performers. Uh, and they just follow this type of uh, traditional religion that has existed in this group. So we like to pray for the salvation of the Burakumi of Japan. Uh, we also, of course, like to continue to pray for what's happening across the world. And one of the things, what is this, I was in Vancouver, what is monkeypox business? I don't want to lock down the uh, I don't know what, is, what the heck monkey pox is, I've had chicken pox, I don't know what monkey thing is, but uh, whatever it is, uh, be gone, like stay away, like please don't enter our world, um, whatever you are, um, so pray for that. Uh, we're also praying, of course, I want, I'd like to specifically pray today for something a little bit local to us, uh, which is Esli and Grace, and unfortunately could not have their wedding yesterday, which is the reason a lot of us traveled uh, to Vancouver this week. We weren't able to attend the wedding, and I'm sure it was quite stressful for both the bride and groom and family. Uh, we were ready to celebrate this day on Saturday, but they have to do it tomorrow, so you know, two days delayed. Uh, so thank and praise the Lord uh, that they're able to have that ceremony and that wedding. Uh, but yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of things going on in their minds and hearts. Just pray for an ease of mind and ease of heart, and uh, that it will be a wonderful celebratory day. I'm sure it will, uh, and that you will be celebrating those great. So we'll just want to lift up a prayer for our brother Esther and her sister Grace, who will be joining us in July. So it's fantastic news to have them here. So let's pray for our community and the group coming of Japan. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the coming of your son here to atone uh, through, your, uh, through his death for our sins on our behalf. It is life as a ransom for many. Thank you for the resurrection, which is hope and sign of a new life and a wonderful eternal uh, resurrection for us. It's glory to be with you forever. We also pray for the Burakumin of Japan. Pray God for the salvation, this gospel truth that we believe in and we are united by, to be preached to these people, that they would come to know Christ, regardless of economic position, regardless of what their treatment is in this world, that they are regarded by God as sons and daughters, we come to faith in Christ. Father, we also pray uh, for our brother Esley and our sister Grace. Uh, I'm sure it was you know, an anticipated weekend, uh, and unfortunately things don't always go as planned, and COVID has been quite a plan ruiner for the last two years. Um, but yeah, Lord, we just pray for their hearts uh, to be at ease, uh, to be grateful for the union they will be able to enjoy uh, approximately 24 hours have that ceremony, celebrate with friends and family and witnesses uh, before you uh, and consummate that relationship. We thank you so much, God, for them, for the union, and we hope to see them soon, safe and sound, and bless them, God. Thank you for listening me. Amen. Today's sermon is entitled, Made Alive in Christ, and it's appropriate because I feel quite dead today. <laughs> I got off a plane at 7 a.m., um, and here I am, but, you know, Christina and Joy uh, and others, but yeah, despite exhaustion, I hope what I'm about to convey makes sense, so if it doesn't, you know, blame uh, Jet Lag or whatever it may be, uh, hopefully the Spirit will speak to you, especially through the Word, and it's pretty clear what Paul is trying to convey, so it shouldn't be too difficult. After explaining the necessary inclusion of the reality of the resurrection of Christ within the Gospel contents to the Corinthians, Paul then explains logically why this truth had to be maintained and believed by all Christians who claim Christ the Savior. It's because, last week we discussed this, our destinies are tied to Christ's. That is the doctrine of our union with Christ. By the way, I want to apologize. Giannis Antetokounmpo last week unfortunately lost by 25 points in the game 7. And uh, his destiny was unfortunately, the Bucks' destiny unfortunately was tied to him. And uh, despite getting 25 points and 20 rebounds, he's now out of the house. So thank God our destinies are not tied to Giannis, but that our eternal destinies are tied to Christ. 
In our union with him, we are, of course, made new. We are made alive. If we are united to Christ in his atoning death, we are certainly and must also be tied to him uh, in his resurrection, and thus our resurrection from the grave. This, to Paul, is his obvious eschatological conclusion. Eschatological meaning the end times, the final times conclusion. That death, the last of the enemies, must be conquered and totally defeated. Therefore, there is no other option than to believe that this death of death will be the end for all believers. In today's passage, Paul breaks down a flow of thinking and logic that may be hard to initially grasp and understand, but upon examination, you can get a sense for exactly what Paul is intending to convey to us. The two main ideas that are contained within here, not the only ideas, but two sort of categorical ideas, is summed up nicely by our commentator Gordon Fee. For Paul, and his argument is centered around our identities as Christians as being in Christ. Right? Our union with him, our in-Christness, is what gives us salvation. This in-Christ reality necessitates, firstly, our future resurrection. And Gordon he writes uh, this about Paul's understanding on this topic. He writes, in Paul's Jewish eschatological heritage, so his Jewish heritage on the end times, Resurrection belonged to the final events of the end. The fact that the resurrection had already taken place within history for Paul meant that the end had been set inexorably, or inexorably in motion. The resurrection of Christ absolutely guaranteed for Paul the resurrection of all who are in Christ. So, so for Paul, what he is writing, what he's saying is that because the resurrection historically has now happened, the end has essentially begun. And then secondly, Paul, as I mentioned earlier, saw the death of people as the final enemy to be destroyed. If death was, of course, the wage of sin, then that was the wage that needed to be removed. It needs to be conquered. Thus, the end times demonstrating the God who is of all in all. You see, Paul uses a very specific language in describing Christ's resurrection. He describes it as, some of you may use this language, and it's not to say you are theologically wrong, but you are slightly theologically inaccurate. It is not a rising of Christ from the grave. That's a descriptor of the event, of the actual occurrence. But rather, theologically and Christologically, and most importantly, soteriologically, so that's salvation related, is God raising Christ from the grave? I know it's a subtle difference. You can say, well, Christ rose from the dead. Isn't that what we say on Easter Sundays? Yes, that's true. That's the event. But what is theologically happening there is that God is raising Christ from the grave. He is consistent. Paul is consistent. For Paul, in his wording, is consistent in using this language to make clear this point. That it is the will of God acting in history and time to bring about the atoning work of the Son so as to redeem the elect to be his own. The final days are at hand to Paul, and because of the resurrection, this is so. And so every believer can now look forward to a resurrection of their life. This might be a little bit, you know, mumbo jumbo, a little bit confusing. Let me break it down for you. So, three simple headers, if you will on the text we read today. The first we find a sectional of verses 20 to 23, death by Adam, life in Christ. The second point is death destroyed, verses 24 to 26. And then finally, that God may be all in all, verses 27 to 28. So three headers, very simple points, not very long today. This opening bit, Death by Adam, life in Christ, verses 20-23. This opening bit of today's passage may feel a bit confusing. But if you read carefully, you can follow Paul's argument relatively easily. Christ is the first fruit in the sense that he first resurrects into glory. Thus, he is the first fruit of those who are asleep. Asleep meaning dead. Now the dead have seen their end. 
their physical end anyways, in that they too will be resurrected. They are second to Christ. They are the second, third, the coming fruits, right? The second fruits to Christ's first fruit, His resurrection. Death is a reality. Certainly it is. It's a sign of the wage of sin. It's a sign of reality of sin. It's a sign of God's, uh, of God's wrath against sin. Death is unavoidable by any human being because we're all tainted by sin. It is the wage of sin. So that certainly is a reality. The Bible makes clear how and why this reality exists. Just turn to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It exists, of course, as we were told in that Genesis narrative, because of our first two humans, right? Adam and Eve, specifically Adam. Because of Adam, all die. Through him, Adam, being our federal head, death became a reality. Death entered the world. But now new life has come through yet another man, but a better man. Paul later started with a better Adam. Those who die and not, are not in Christ will simply die. As in Adam, all will die. But for those who are in Christ and Christos, those who are in His, union, in union with Him, at His second coming, will they be raised into glory forever. The term that Paul uses to describe Christ, and specifically His resurrection, is first fruit. This term has a rich Old Testament background, but there's no need to overcomplicate the meaning of the obvious metaphor that's found here. Regardless of whether you're familiar with the Old Testament background, the first fruit or first fruits of a harvest were considered to be what? Signs of a plentiful harvest to come. It was a sign of good things, greater things to come. As such, Israel was commanded by God to give their first fruits as an offering to God and have them consecrated before the Lord by presenting it before the Levites. Both metaphors work here and are at play. As Christ's resurrection surely a consecrated offering unto the Lord, and it functions to serve as a precursor to the blessing of what? The resurrection of all believers to come. It is a sign of a plentiful harvest for those who are in Christ. What should not be lost is the emphasis on Paul's argument being made, or made complete here, if you will. He started in the opening passage of chapter 15, remember two weeks ago, teaching the reality of a historical resurrection of Christ, which in turn means a future reality of a physical resurrection of all believers. And thus, those who are in Christ are secure to know that death will not be your end. There is no perishing to those who are found in Him. This is why Paul can proclaim, just die as gain. Second point, death destroyed, verses 24 to 26. As explained in the introduction, Paul in his Jewish eschatology, his understanding of the end times, which is a biblical one, even though it has Jewish tradition behind it, expected a resurrection as a signal of the end. Since Christ has been raised and has been resurrected, to Paul, this ushered in, he deems, the rule of Christ. It's not a kingly rule, so to speak, like an earthly king rule, but it's the rule of Christ, that we're all now tied to Christ in some way, as a believer or not as a believer. End has begun, and the inevitable conclusion to this reign ends the way it began. Death is defeated. Christ defeats death himself by overcoming the grave and conquering death itself, and it will end that the same way as we conquer death as believers. Not on, the, on any sort of basis or power that we you know, contain or have within ourselves, but on the basis of Christ, our union with Him. So this is the reality. Death is defeated both in the beginning and finally and ultimately in the end. Christ's resurrection begins this rule and this reign. The resurrection of the elect into glory completes it. Death becomes no more. But be careful here. This is the only point I really want to make on these verses. Be careful here in reading Paul. 
He does not intend to provide here for you a chronological order of events of the end to come. Um, there are a lot of texts that are eschatological in nature and speak on the end times. And you've probably heard sermons on such texts. Matthew 24 is famously such a text. Um, Revelation, you can go to texts like that. And of course, uh, a lot of cults out there will manipulate texts like these to fit a narrative and fit a belief system and an understanding based on what they're reading here. And there are degrees to this understanding. But if we're following what Paul has been doing in 1 Corinthians, and we're following what Paul is conveying here, do you get the impression that Paul is giving you a specific, chronological, sequential order of events? That is not the case. That's not what he's done in many lists prior. That's not what he's intending to do here. He's giving you a framework to, work, uh, to understand this concept within. But he's certainly, at least in this reading, not giving you a chronological order of events of the end to come. He's giving you, rather, a logical flow of events, certainly in some sequential order, but it does not appear to me that this event will immediately follow this event, and then this event will be immediately followed by this event. He's highlighting certain events in a certain order, but he's not saying that these are the only events, and he's certainly not saying for you to expect for these events to occur in consecutive, sequential, chronological order as Paul has listed. Paul's, and how do we know this? Of course, we read Romans and we can understand, we read Corinthians and understand, we read Thessalonians, the famous letter on eschatology, and understand that this is not Paul's understanding. He's giving you a Jewish, traditional understanding eschatologically of the end times that these certain events must occur and will occur, and here are the sort of the general framework in which these things will occur. So Paul's framework is to say simply this: Christ the first fruit has been raised. You too, if you are in faith, shall be raised in the end. So you have that last verse: the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Christ conquers the grave, and the death will be defeated. That's what he that's the framework he wants you to understand in the conveying of these things. Finally, third point, God may be all in all. Verses 27 to 28. I think this is really the climax of the passage that we read today. And it, and it, uh, it reflects on and it continues to argue on what we find in verse 25 actually, which is a quote of Psalm chapter 8 verse 6. And Psalm chapter 8 verse 6 reads this, You have him rule over the works of your hands. You have put everything under his feet. That's Psalm 8.6. Paul has this principle in mind in verse 25, which really is a parallel synonym to the Psalm verse. That verse 25 is really a parallel synonym or a re-articulation of that passage. Paul is teaching that God has placed Christ in rule and reign for a certain period of time, but that all things are under the feet of God at all times in the sense of his overarching will. His overarching providence being in place over all things at all times. So although things, it seems like when you read it, that everything is subject to Christ, and then Christ is subject to the Father, and the Father, and then at a certain point, that dominion is delivered to the Father, and then all things become subject unto the Father, and He becomes the God of all in all. That's not the case. We understand this theologically, that God in His triune nature is the Godhead over all things. That is providence that is overarching and above all things at all times. But it is a subjection under the will of God that is allowed for a period of time. And I'll get to the term subjection because it can be confusing if you read it in a modern, in a modern sense. And there is a rule that is being filled for redemptive history to unfold. You're not following. I know that's why I say these last two verses are the climax. It's really important you understand this. Paul is teaching that God has placed Christ in rule and reign, that all things are under the feet of God at all times. This is what Paul means when he climaxes with the statement, so that God may be all in all. This is not only the climax of this passage, but the climax of Paul's eschatological expectations. This is the end. 
Calvin would say it as the glory of God. Right? All glory up to God. Christ rules, death is defeated, and then God rules and reigns. Be careful here, again, in your reading, to not read so much into the intricacy of a rule of Christ being handed over to God. This is where you get the conversation of amillennialism, postmillennialism, premillennialism. And if you're not familiar with these terms, it's okay. We'll study these later when we, you know, in our study of the Catechism. Um, this is where we get this type of language. But it's not so much in this text specifically. There are other texts where Paul is speaking on these things. But in this particular text, there is no indication of intricacy of Paul of the desire on Paul's end to describe a rule of Christ and a very specific description of that. And then that being handed over to God the Father in the end. He's just giving us a general framework again to work within. There's a tease here, a tease for all of us here that wants to separate the two persons of the Trinity in our reading. And we want to separate their rule as being sort of eras of rule that are distinct from one another. And in some sense, they are distinct. And in some sense, they are different. And you can understand it that way properly. But you can also understand it improperly. Understanding it as two distinct persons with two distinct rules at two distinct times with no overlap. But the proper understanding of what Paul is saying is much simpler. It is simply this. Christ's rule as the second person of the Trinity, as the Son of God, is to die and to be raised from the dead for the atonement of the sins of the elect. Upon completion of this rule and this function, which in its function is under the subjection of the will of the Father, we know this force in the Garden of Gethsemane, very final night, what is Christ praying? Not my will, but your will be done. So it's the will of the Father as the thread of all things and the power of the Spirit. Christ relies on this too, the Spirit to empower Him, if you will, in some sense, to, to do these things. The, tri the triune Godhead is at work in redemptive history. Christ rules and reigns in the sense that all people will be judged on the basis of, the ab of an absence or presence of faith in Christ. And then the death that Christ conquered will then be realized on the final day for those who believe. And all things will come under the subjection of God fully. But it will also be realized that even the rule and reign of Christ was always under the subjection of God anyway. And that even in a turning over of dominion to God the Father, Christ and the Spirit will rule with and as God for all eternity. What is being articulated by Paul, if all of that confused you, is an identification of the role of the Son in redemptive history and the role of the Father in redemptive history in raising to life all believers unto glory. Do not confuse the term subjection here that Paul uses to mean some sort of hierarchical inferiority on Christ's end. Or more, more precisely, an ontological distinction that implies that the Son is lesser than the Father in any way. That is not true. So be careful in your reading. I know the term subjection can trigger that thought, but you have to relent that thought, suppress it, and read it carefully. There is a sense of subjection. But it's not a subjection that is that indicates inferiority on Christ's end. We have to be careful in our reading of such texts. How do we know Paul implies this? Or how do we know that Paul has this understanding? Well, we read Romans and we get that understanding. We read his other epistles and we get that understanding. He understands the second person to be equal to the Father. Gordon Fee writes, Nothing lies outside God's redemptive purposes in Christ in whom all things finally will be united. Therefore, at the death of death, the final rupture, and the universe will be healed, and God alone will rule over all beings, banishing those who have rejected His offer of life, and lovingly governing all those who by grace have entered into God's rest. That's a beautiful way of articulating uh, what I was trying. <laughs> it's much more beautiful than how I could be it. But I want to conclude with this. 
And then a contemporary hymn by Michael Smith, uh, Crown Him With Many Crowns. This is a hymn that we have, have seen here at church. We find in the last verse of, of this psalm these words. I think it really encompasses what, we're, what Paul is trying to convey. It reads, His glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring, and lives that death may die. Isn't that beautiful? What glory there is in Christ, that he should bring death to death itself. How sweet it is to know that our end will not be lost, but total gain. And how wonderful it is that death has lost its sting, and it will not have the final pride. In one of the most famous scenes, and I never, ever lose or fail to lose an opportunity to reference Star Wars. So here I go. One of the most famous scenes in all of the Star Wars universe, a final between final battle, I should say, between Master and Padawan. I don't know what a Padawan is. I don't know who you are or what you do. you got to Google that right away. P-A-D-A-W-A-N, Padawan, right? Apprentice. Can be observed in Episode 4, A New Hope. In this scene, Master Jedi Obi-Wan Kenobi duels his old apprentice Darth Vader. Or Anakin Skywalker turned Darth Vader. And in their previous match, in Episode 3, they found on the planet Mustafar, a lava planet. Kenobi defeated his young apprentice in epic lightsaber battle. But in this duel of fates, this final battle between master and apprentice, Kenobi stares down his old friend, now turned enemy, and he declares this. <clears throat> he says these words, If you strike me down, I will become more powerful than you can ever imagine. Vader, of course, strikes him down. <laughs> Kenobi vanishes. That day, Vader won the fight, but he lost the war. For death, was no death at all for Kenobi. It was the birth of a new hope in the galaxy. And in Christ's death, it was our first fruit, a promise of a harvest to come, and a new hope for all of us that we can live. Let's pray and reflect on what God has taught us today. First Corinthians 15.
to hold on to this truth um, throughout this week as well. Help us to remember this whenever we feel down, whenever we start to hope more in things of this world, um, more than our Lord, our Savior, our Creator. Um, just still our hearts before you, Lord, and humble us um, before your throne, Lord. Um, we're really nothing. Uh, we're just specks of dust, Lord, uh, but you've made us um, co-heirs in Christ, and Lord, help us to respond in obedience and gratitude to this wonderful wonderful hope and truth and uh, we also pray for the offering may it be used for your kingdom work um, the furthering of your name lord um, in this city in this church um, and may we give um, just not out of obligation but help us to just intentionally pray prayerfully um, give to you lord um, as what we have is not ours to begin with so we thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. That was beautiful. All right. Uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, feeling, I'm feeling the exhaustion. It's like creeping up on me now. But we have a person here. We have a big day ahead of us. So first of all, welcome, all of you. So 
today. I'm just going to teach quickly on 1.4 and 1.5 today, take some questions, and then we'll wrap up uh, later. So that'll follow lunch. We have about, say about like 30 minutes at most. So if you can stick around for that, it will be really beneficial. By the way, did anyone forget this or leave this at church? I won this and you left it. Oh, there you go. Taking it back. I don't know who you are. Actually, I know which one it could be. Um, anyways, if you're embarrassed to come up and get it, uh, it's there for you. It was found. And so, there you go. Uh, so yeah, please stick around if you can. Uh, we'd love to have you for our MCF study. I'll follow lunch, um, immediately try to clean up as quickly as possible, do that, and then uh, you know, those who need the day off or need a break, you can do that right now, okay? Uh, men's and women's group, if you'd like to join us on a monthly basis for uh, either our men's side or the women's side, and uh, join for our establishment group, we'd love to have you. So if you're not plugged in and you'd like to plug in, just talk to you, Christina, myself, Tony, uh, and John are not here, but anyways, you can have to join too, as well. On that note, Tony's car unfortunately is not starting. Um, so we called some roadside assistance. So if you, I don't know if you have to lift up prayer, but if you just shoot a message like, oh, we'll see you soon, whatever. Hopefully they can uh, be mobile uh, for the rest of the day. Uh, they had a long week. And uh, of course, we have a softball game today, 6.30 p.m. It's on. Uh, so you can come out. I know the weather's like a little bit not great. Um, so I, I think as long as there's no lightning, there is a game. I, I think that's how it works. Uh, but yeah, I mean, probably want to dress warm, maybe have some umbrellas. Um, and just, you know, get some break. So if you join us, fantastic. We'd love to have you there. Join us for dinner after uh, as well, of course. Uh, Esli, as I told you in our prayer, is getting married tomorrow instead of yesterday. Uh, so you have to wait two more days. But it is happening, it's fantastic news. Um, and for those of you who don't know him, he's a captain in the Canadian Army and forces, and he's an uh, engineer, and he's, he's going to be here soon, and it's cool, right? And we'll see him soon, right? Excited to see that guy and his wife. I got to see them this week, of course, in Vancouver, and he's doing really well. So I've never seen him this happy. He's usually like a stock or like a robot, um, but he's actually like, smiling, he looks bright, like I'm really, praise the Lord, right? Amazing, but love will do with you. Um, our offering prayer next week uh, is Teresa. So can we pray? Oh, you're not here? No. All right. Uh, <laughs> uh, let me check. Next on the list, Mikey is also not here. Hey, Jess, you're up. <laughs> oh, on that note, Mikey and John are overseas. Right? Mikey's in Korea and John's in uh, Europe, some part of Europe, I don't know where, but. Uh, Hopefully they get back safe, so I think Mikey's back soon though, right? Like next week. Next week, okay. perfect. So we'll see him soon. Church will get loud again. Anyways, uh, that's that. On the note of offering prayer, let's rise for our seats. or something like that, so please join us, and uh, God bless. We'll see you again next Sunday.